Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Andrew Newby, and I'm hosting a series of iResearch Services podcasts over the coming weeks. These are intended to educate senior level marketers and thought leaders as to how to address some of the more challenging and exciting issues facing them currently. Our topic today is that of the future of work and the revolution in automation and remote working. With that, I have great pleasure in welcoming today's guest expert, Bill Jensen, CEO of the Jensen Group. Global speaker, thought leader, best-selling author, futurist, and self-proclaimed simpleton, Bill has worked with organizations ranging from the BBC, Bank of America, Walt Disney, and the World Bank, right through to, of all organizations, the US Navy SEALs, very impressive. Bill shows how simplicity can help achieve better results for organizations and how that, that simplicity principle creates and transfers value throughout an organization. Bill's latest book, The Day Tomorrow Said No, is a leadership book that puts full center the conversation about our future and the future of work specifically. It is a fable that is fact-based. It uses actual trends and data to drive both a storyline and readers understanding about what we need to do today to have a just tomorrow that everyone can share in. Bill Jensen, Bill, welcome, and thank you very much for sharing your insights with our listeners. Andrew, thank you for having me. Thrilled to be with you. An absolute pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Um, just to start off, um, can you give our listeners your thoughts on what they should, the main takeaways from, from the day tomorrow said no? Um, it, it seems to be, or it is clearly to me, anyway, a call to justice. Absolutely. A call for global justice for all of our people who work everywhere around the globe. Um, I've been practicing in change and train, change management and organizational transformation and leadership development for 35 years now. And one of my biggest frustrations is getting through to leaders about how we need to change that so many people are being left behind. They keep uh, uh, advocating for their A-level players, but B or C-level players who, you know, teammates who could be awesome if they got the right support, could right training, were constantly be constantly being left in economics and how capitalism is driven, that we're just leaving so many people behind, so much so that leading economists now say we're heading to an economy uh, that's going to be, there's no middle class. We're heading towards a future where there's no middle class. It's going to be the bottom 60% and the top 40%, at least the way we're currently heading. We need to change that. So the fable uh, was to give a wake-up call that we are leaving so many people behind. And what was fascinating to me today, just as I saw from the, the editor of Fortune magazine, put a post that said, the future of work, you know, it's, it's, it's for academics, it's for futurists, but CEOs didn't really have to worry about it. They just had to have their technology up to date. And he said, no, there's, now with COVID-19, we're realizing how many people were left behind, how many people could work from home and didn't have to work in offices. So the, the central tenant of the book is to provide that wake up call. And I wrote it in a fable setup so that everybody, I've tested 
this down to grade school level. Everybody from grade school to middle school to high school to university level uh, to C-suite uh, people and middle managers can all use it as a tool to have different kinds of conversations about where we're going in the future. Right. So, so can you give an example or just some sense of how, you know, the, the, the opportunities for, um, the, or the rules rather for income uh, sort of gain for just opportunity uh, and success are rigged against the majority of, of, of people in the workforce? Well, I use COVID-19 as a current example. Uh, we all had to go virtual. We all had to work from our homes. Mm. Well, who can work from our homes? You, me, and, and marketers, all the marketeers, and we're knowledge workers. We can, we can go virtual. What about the, janit the janitor? Uh, what about the lunch counter person? Uh, what about the sanitation worker? Uh, there are many people anywhere, depending on your economy, anywhere between 40 to 60% of us that really had to go to a physical place of work or do something physical. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do it remotely. Uh, in the next room, uh, my girlfriend is virtual teaching right now, and yet she's teaching uh, grade school kids. And they squirm in their seats. They're ready to jump out, and they're not—they're not ready for <laughs> virtual teaching. Uh, they need to warm bodies to hug and bump into, and and you know rub rub up against, and you know just pal around with. Uh, so the the opportunities COVID nineteen pointed out to us how many of us are still struggling in this knowledge and service work economy. Many of us are doing great, don't get me wrong. The, the, many of the marketeers that are listening, many of the CIOs, CMOs, they'll, they'll do great. But we're all dependent on those lunch counter people, the sanitation people, the, you know, the, the, all the, the blue collar bus, and they are really getting screwed over right now. Right. You, you mentioned, um, you cite a study you were involved in <clears throat> whereby three and four uh, workers see the future of work pushing them to their, what we call their outer limits beyond their capacity. Um, what does that mean in, in practice? Why is, why is that such a big challenge? Uh, there are two uh, data points I want to share with you. That one and another one uh, means that three quarters of us are pushed to our outer limits. I've worked in HR. Um, or that's U.S. speak, HR in U.K. speak, uh, you know, for 35 years. And we have gotten rid of all the layers of the administration. You know, everybody is uh, delayered as much as we can. Uh, there's no, you know, management layers are, are taken away. Well, in one way, that's efficiency. That's, that's good. Uh, but what, we, what we've been pushing on to the limit is people, more and more and more stuff just keeps coming at us. And what happened, the internet and all our technology tools are absolutely amazing. They do amazing things for us. People can, a doctor can operate halfway around the world virtually mm. on a body that, you know, it does never even seen physically, is we are in constant overload. 
the, the entire globe has 24 seven access to us, you know, emails, text, you know, all the apps that we use, everybody can keep bombarding us. Uh, so, and we also suffer many of us from what's called FOMO, the fear of missing out. Uh, the thing that why everybody is so overloaded, it's a problem with the work and the workload and that we keep shoving more and more and more stuff at people, but it's also personal and individual. Uh, the one thing I want all of your your listeners, re viewers to, to remember is the number 1,440, and that is the number of minutes in every day. Nobody gets more than that. Nobody gets 1,441, and yet we keep cramming hours and days and weeks worth of crap that comes at everybody, and we're, all of us, the CMOs especially, are vying for people's attention. The most precious assets that every individual has is their time and their attention. So why everybody is so overloaded that 75% of their at their, they can't figure out, nobody taught them how to ignore stuff, how to, how to truly prioritize stuff, what's urgent and what has to be paid attention to and what can be let go of. And even our teammates send us emails Lots of our texts and emails and chat spaces and meetings can be ignored, should be ignored. But we, we weren't taught how to organize all the stuff that out of the, how to, uh, as Marshall McLuhan said, how to s separate signal from noise. So that's a whole new learning set that we need to learn what's really important. So the overload, the 75%, is just so much coming at us, and very few of us have the skills to do that. But uh, there's another data point I want to mention, if I may, Andrew, that, that, that prompted the book that I wrote, The Day T Tomorrow Said No. Uh, I've asked thousands of people around the globe, can you achieve your dreams? where you currently work. Now, I came up with a percentage that said yes. Um, let me ask you, Andrew, what would you guess globally, right, you know, all different kinds of work, you know, frontline workers, middle managers, CEOs, um, what percentage out of, you know, 100 people, what number do you think would say, yes, I can achieve my dreams where I work? What percentage? 10%. 10%? What is... 10. What number? 10. 10. Actually, yeah. actually, you are spot on. It was 9.8%. But think I'm about it. Very pessimistic. <laughs> but think about it. We're joking about pessimism, but think about that. Only one in 10 of us <clears throat> in every workplace believes that we can achieve our dreams where we currently work. It's shocking. That's, that's shocking. And we have to change. That's part of it. It's not just the economic thing. It's I have a dream. Can I achieve my dream? It, part of it is economic. Part of it is socio-economic. Part of it is uh, racial. Part of it is immigrants. Part of it is technology. It's a mix of a whole bunch of stuff. But what it comes down to, and this is why I wrote the book, The Day Tomorrow Said No, the title came from the fact that I created three characters today current time, tomorrow, the future, and the other character is little one or the future workforce. And the title comes from the fact of an inciting, what's called in storytelling, an inciting moment uh, where tomorrow refused to take the handoff from to today. No, no, I'm not taking the handoff. I'm not going to let you go into the future because you're letting 8 billion people fail.
because only 10% of them can achieve their dreams. So it was the loss of dreams that, that prompted this story. So it goes from there and it talks about how we can fix things. Right. So you write about um, the three Bs. Um, are you a believer? Are you a breaker? Or are you a builder? Um, can you elaborate on what you mean by, by those terms? Because they, they seem sense. Sure. Uh, builder is the most obvious. That's what we're all doing. We're all supposed to execute. Do, 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 do. Give me a checklist. Go get it done. Those are builders. That's, That's most of us. That's today. Yes. Yes. The breakers are the innovators. They're the Steve Jobs. They are uh, who was, you know, the paramount uh, for all of us, the marketing god. He was not a technologist, but he saw he had a vision and he pulled together different tools. You know, everybody from Elon Musk to Steve Jobs to whoever is out there creating things that will completely change and revolutionize how we work, how we play, uh, you know, how we uh, how we get things done. So the breakers are the, the innovators. We need a lot more of those. Most of us, most organizations say, oh, we're gonna innovate, we're gonna win by innovating. But really what they mean is innovate within the box that we give you that is predictable profitability. We're not really gonna break the rules. We're not really going to innovate. So we need a lot more breakers. And the believers, I want you to, th any of you, no matter what country you're in, look around you and look at how many protests are going on around you with COVID-19 and what's going on around society. The believers are not just the ones who say, I believe in my team, rah-rah team. I believe, you know, if we're the, we're the blue and the yellow team, we're gonna be blue and yellow, I bleed blue and yellow, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, those are the believers, the, the teammates that passionately believe in the team goal, the organization's goal, and they put their self behind it. Those are believers. But also, the believers are the ones in the streets right now protesting because things are not fair for all people. So we need to create more space for the democratization of everybody's voice within organizations. Most organizations say, yeah, yeah, you can give us feedback, but you know, we're not gonna really do anything with it. We need to be able to have our believers who believe, I believe in this company, I believe in this product, but you need to do something a little differently so I can be my best or my teammates can be their best. We usually don't listen to those voices. So the believers are the ones we need to listen to uh, most uh, passionately right now. And the breakers are the ones who will be the innovators. And what I did with the book is I, um, you, my intro called me a simpleton. That comes from my first book, Simplicity. What I've been known for for over three decades is simplifying complex things down to very easy to understand, easy to do chunks. So what I've done in this book is taken all work across the globe. It doesn't matter what your title is. You can be a healthcare worker, you can be a marketeer, you can be a construction worker, it doesn't matter. All work visually or some combination of uh, believer, breaker, or builder. That's all work across the globe, fits in those three categories. That's where that comes from. Right, so you, you, you write elsewhere about the ideology of comfort and, and the tyranny of, of custom. Um, so, do we need iconoclasts, the people who 
say we can do this and you you say this can't be done but i can say this can be done people who, who perceive things slightly differently from other people your, your steve jobs example or are we just talking that anyone can be a believer or a breaker or, or, or a builder I don't we do need both. We need everybody to be more, to, for everyone to feel safe to innovate. When I've done cultural change efforts and I've gone deep in organizations and I've lived with them for three months, six months, two years, several years, uh, what I found is every individual uh, has in them a spark of innovation and creativity. It's been squashed out of them. You know, mm. look at any two-year-old, you know, every two-year-old how to ask why, why, why do we do this? And knows how to break the rules and knows how to do things differently and create, you know, every five-year-old knows how to do that. But as, as we get to 10, 20, 30 years old, it all gets squashed out of us. So every individual, we do need everybody feeling the comfort and the safety to be able to take risks. And they don't have to be huge risks. You know, I have lots of people that say, I can't log, I can't not go to that meeting because my boss will ding me if I don't go to the meeting, even though it's a waste of time. So risk taking can just be not going to a meeting <laughs> and preserving more of your 1440. So the answer to your question is both. We need everybody to feel more comfortable taking risks and innovating, but we also do need uh, a core class of the iconoclasts. And what COVID-19 has taught us is unfortunately, most of our iconoclasts that are rule breakers are white male technologists. We need more diversity, global mm -hmm. diversity, gender, race, age, uh, all different kinds of diversity in there. So the iconoclast needs to be, if we could, if I could ask for one change in the next decade, it would be that our iconoclasts are far, far, far more diverse than we are right now. Right. One of the, um, the question you, you want people to ask themselves, if there is one question is, or, or, or statement is, I am accountable for fill in the blank. Um, what should people be thinking of to get to their answer to that question of how to fill in the blank? I am accountable for. Is there any one particular answer or just there is thing people should be thinking about? There is, but let me go one step before your question. Um, all religions have, and it doesn't matter what you believe or don't believe, the uh, all religions have a variation of the golden rule: treat other people the way I would like to be treated. Be kind to others. Love. Love is the universal thing. Uh, and that goes to time. Marketeers are very guilty of this. We try to use other people's. The only way we get our work done is we use a portion of someone else's life to get our work done. So be kind, respectful of other people. Well, what I'm accountable for, the question in the book is, what am I doing to make the world a better place? What am I doing to make my, my neighbor feel safer? What am I doing to help my teammates be better? So the accountable goes beyond personal accountability. It's what am I accountable for that's bigger than me, that's greater than me, that benefits more people than me or my kind?
So in the book, the, it con, that's the conclusion. It asks all of us to ask, I'm accountable for what? Once you realize that we're leaving too many people behind, mm. what is, so that's the action that comes out of this book. What are you, so, okay, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? And that is the answer for each individual reader of this book. I can only pose the question. It's not my right or my place to impose what the answer is, but it is my job to provoke, to be the iconoclast that says, no, we have to, be, we have to start taking, whether it's global warming, uh, whether it's healthcare, you know, any issue on any front that all of us experience, somebody else needs your help. Who is it besides you know, the product or service or company that you serve. And, and this ties in with, with the bigger picture of the rise of automation, intelligent, intelligent technologies, AI, machine learning, and so on. I guess this all becomes part of that debate about what we do to minimize the lot of those, those left behind. Um, <laughs> Your of, to your question on automation, may I jump in there? Because we, we had a pre-conference to plan this. Uh, I wanted to mention one thing you know, that was an example from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, the oldest running AI system that we know of uh, commercially uh, was originally called Sabre. It was developed by American Airlines. And it's, it's now universally used around the globe. Mm -hmm. But it's artificial intelligence running airline reservations. So that determines your seat is cheaper than mine or your seat is more expensive than mine, even though we bought them two seconds apart. Um, a couple of years ago, United Airlines had an instance where uh, they, were, they had too many people on the plane and nobody would volunteer to get off. So the computer, AI, picked somebody, said, you, that seat, there, you're going to get out. What well, happened to be a doctor and he had to be a certain place? So they said, no, I'm not getting out. So they called security. You know, they, they, the flight attendants couldn't deal with them. Security couldn't deal with them. They couldn't get them off. They had security, airport security, ended up dragging him down the aisle, banging his head against the seats, got all bloodied. It was on, on all sorts of social media. Uh, United's uh, airline stock tanked for a bit. And why did this happen? Because a computer is now the boss. The computer said, you, the AI system said, that guy must go. No, no flight attendant or no pilot stepped in and said, hey, what if we offered you a thousand bucks? How about 10,000? How about a hundred thousand? Would somebody volunteer to get off? The humanity, what we need to be careful of is our systems are being programmed because it's much more efficient to take people out of the equation. Our systems are being programmed more and more by artificial intelligence to make us do things. More and more of the viewers that you have, their bosses are not going to be humans. They're gonna be machines, AI, telling us what to do. So we need to be careful to inject humanity into all of these systems. Yeah, I mean, the, the airline in question could have simply just bribed, just waved $10,000 in front of everyone on the plane. Somebody would have gotten off, but no, the but the, we, ha we had to have the computer telling us what to do. Right. So you, I mean, this comes down to something else that you, you, you sort of deal with in your work about, um, or a facet of something else, you're, you're taking marketing principles inside a company and, and learning to communicate 
properly, which is the biggest problem for many companies. A lot of marketing principles, if I may, again, use my simpleton hat, uh, super simplifying what we do. Mm. Uh, we learn how to leverage and utilize people's time and attention to make a profit, to get a product sold, to get a service sold, to get mm -hmm. an event to happen. We are masters at using people's time and attention. That is a powerful, powerful tool. But like all tools, it's two-sided. Are we going to use it for good? Or are we going to use it for evil? So yes, we're able to capture people's attention better than the average person. What I do is I bring that inside. And when I, when I teach that inside companies, it's like, OK, here's Marketing 101, how to write an email, how to write a text, how to run a meeting, so that you capture people's attention instantly instead of just going by an itemized checklist, know how to capture people's attention in a meeting or a text or an email. But there's the other side of that. Don't waste their time. Stop CCing everybody because the, the, you know, the, the universal use of CC, uh, tell me if you know the acronym, it's really CYA. What is CYA? Yeah. yeah. No, really the reason, yeah, the real reason we're CCing other people is so there's a record somewhere that we did something, but they didn't really need their time wasted. We're just doing that because it's political. So what I teach people inside of organizations, yes, I teach them some marketing 101 principles about how to leverage and use and capitalize people's time and attention. That's important. But also with that, as Spider-Man, or as, as Uncle Ben uh, said to Spider-Man, you know, with, com with great power comes great responsibility. The marketeers that are out there have this amazing tool to capture and leverage people's time and attention. With that amazing power comes great responsibility. Are we, if people's time and attention are their most precious asset, are we making sure we're using people's time properly? And where that comes from me, why I'm so passionate about this, why I get pissed if we're not doing it, why I get happy if we are, it all comes down, I'll be super quick about this, but it's, it's a personal story for me. It's the death of my mom. And what happened is they, the night she was dying, they lost her in the hospital for 40 minutes. They sent her in one direction and us as the family in another. And for 40 minutes, nobody knew, nobody was with her. She was dying alone. And it, thankfully, we did get together before she passed. But um, I realized, not at that moment, but probably a year later after the grieving process had settled down, damn it, that hospital stole 40 of the last minutes that I would ever get with my mm. mom. So I am a passionate, tenacious advocate for being more and more respectful of people's time and attention. Yes, use that knowledge that we have to capture their time and attention, but make sure that we use it wisely. Make sure we're also serving a greater good. Coming back to the question you asked me, I will ask all of your viewers and listeners, what are you accountable for when it comes to the greater good of how we use people's time and attention beyond selling a product or service? Uh, what are you accountable for? That's the question I'd like to leave with all of your viewers. Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. Um, so I guess the, um, 
learning to communicate properly is it's really it's you're getting in other people's shoes of emphasizing and just simply um looking looking from the point of view of the, the person receiving the message a, a sort of cultural creed occur sort of call to action that you're, you're you're talking about everything i've been doing that i've dedicated my life's work to is would, would come down to one word and that's empathy being able to put mm -hmm. ourselves in the other person's shoes and marketeers do that there's a there's a new term you know in the last few years it's become in vogue it's called design thinking and the the essence of design thinking is empathy it's being able to understand the other person how they use your product or service uh fully uh but again let's go beyond what we're selling what we profit from how do we how do we truly have empathy for that working single mom. I'll give you an example. I was a, a keynote uh, uh, at one of the world's largest uh, software, uh, enterprise software companies. They, they run, it, this is like the master software that runs everything in the company. And uh, I'll keep it anonymous so I don't get in trouble, but the, uh, the the CFO was there talking about. Look at this! Isn't this cool? You know, with a, we have to, we can't tell right now if we have too many people on vacation. Look at this! With the turn of this button, you can make sure people are not on vacation when you do, when you need them not to be. And that horrified me. That felt like Big Brother. So I threw away half of my slides and I said, "Wait a second. Let me tell you about something about one of your employees. One of your employees is probably a single mom. She probably has three kids." probably for three years she's been planning this work this trip to Disney World this has been she's been slogging away in the middle of your organization and she's been planning this trip to Disney World for three years and suddenly you turn that knob and Disney World goes away how do you think she feels about you your organization your software what, is it, what does that make her feel so empathy is more than just well our stakeholder says they need this so we can design it a certain way it really means how are we leveraging everything we do uses a portion of someone else's life? Am I truly being accountable for how I use that portion of someone else's life? Am I truly being respectful? Am I truly being empathetic? And it's not just down to allowing remote working or flexible working, though those are uh, realities for for many people. So you're you're re-advocating a, a it's a just a, a change of the way we think, and and relate to our fellow humans. Exactly. It's uh, the transactional steps of remote learning, etc., are baby steps. The real big steps is trust. You know, remote learning is you know instead of watching you at my at your desk and CCing everybody, it's about trust. It's about empathy. It's about it's it's emotional connections. It's uh, EQ. You know, emotional intelligence. A lot more has to be built in, and uh, and not just uh, that you understand, but that empathy for that person 
even when we did re remote learning before COVID-19 and we were doing it globally, you know, somebody on the other side of the world would have to wake up at 3 a.m. Uh, you know, I often have meetings with somebody in India. I'm in the U.S. Uh, you know, it's there 3 a.m. I'm, so, I'm so sorry for keeping up. No, no, I'm used to it. Uh, but we need we need to be much more empathetic in putting ourselves in the other person's shoes when we when we are remote learning. So if it's not just did we get the work done, it's can that person achieve their dreams the way we currently work? Can they have a life? Are they truly not just empowered within your organization, within your way of making a profit, are they empowered to run their life the way they need to run it uh, with the way you've set up your work. So it goes way beyond just remote learning and remote working. And if you were doing a sort of um, lift pitch, I'm not asking you for like 20 seconds, but so what would, you know, if you talk to the hard, hard nosed CEO about, okay, well, everyone's happy and nice and fulfilled, but so what, what does that happen? What does that mean for my bottom line? What do you, what are the sort of, what be the concrete results that, that such organization, an organization that uh, breaks down barriers in the way you, you, you describe, what, what does that do to bottom line? And the, the agility or, or whatever of the company, the way it interacts with clients. I'll give you two answers. The, sh the one you asked is agility and innovation and creativity. Uh, mm. These things allow you to bring the whole person to work. So you, you can get, you, can, you don't need this stuff if all you're worried about is efficiency. But if you're worried about innovation, creativity, uh, change, you are allowing the whole person to be there. Uh, so the lift pitch is always about uh, innovation or ability to personal agility, not just agility. But how I create that lift pitch is I create it, uh, I don't have to say a damn thing. What I do is when I'm in change consulting, one of my best consulting assignments that I ever do that has the most success is I ask the senior team to do a frontline worker job for a day. So if you're a chief marketing officer, go do the programmer's job for a day. Go do the delivery person's job for the day. So I once did this with a global retailer that I can't say. And I took the CFO, the chief financial officer, the guy that's in charge of all the money. And I asked him to be a cashier for a day. He didn't last a full day. He lasted half a day. And he said, oh, my God, I can't believe how hard it is to make money in this company. And yet he's in charge of the money. He had no empathy for what it was like to stand at a cash register where all the Excel spreadsheets eventually added up to him. All he saw was Excel spreadsheets. Um, so, again, the best lift pitch is not a pitch. It's asking the senior team to have true empathy and do the toughest job in their organization for a day. Suddenly, they become all aware and they create their own lift pitch. I don't need to say a thing. Brilliant. Bill, thank you so much for your time and insights. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Um, I've loved it. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. That was brilliant. I love that.
I knew I knew I'd have fun talking to you. Um, <laughs> do um, I, I, you, you've got to tell me about the the Navy SEALs. What the hell were you doing with the Navy SEALs? Well, it was fascinating. Uh, anywhere between eight and sixteen guys, eight to twelve, sixteen, and uh, they're very they're like family units. They're trained together. They live together. Uh, they die together. Um, so the lieutenant commander of one of the state Navy SEAL teams out in Coronado Bay in California uh, read my book, Simplicity, and he sent me a mind map of it. He figured out the architecture of how the ideas in my book, not just the table of contents, but how each idea that I had figured in that I planted in there, but I never told anybody about it. He, he sent me back a mind map and said, this is how th what you wrote here connects to here, connects to here. Can you come talk to my team? So out of that, I've done several gigs with the Navy SEALs. And what fascinated me the most about these guys, all men, they could all kill you with their thumb, uh, you know, it, the most uh, in touch with their feminine side group of men I have ever experienced. Why? Because steel teams are more family than they are work team. Because mm. my, if you and I are on the same team, our life is totally in each other's hands. Whatever you do, you know, you could kill me, you know, get me killed, or I could get you killed. So it's all about having each other's back. Um, so when I write about agile teamwork, I use the SEALs as an example. T great teamwork is not, um, is not just, okay, we work together well. It's do I have your back? Do I know what is important to Andrew? And am I worried about that and making sure you don't overwork? So I learned a lot from the Navy SEALs, but it really impressed me. And when I was, I was in the middle of training for doing full day training out there, and I forget the name, C-130 or whatever, the largest plane there is that can transport tanks and other things around the world, it was landing. And we all had to stop. We went out to the tarmac, the wives and the kids. It was a family reunion, you know, because all of these people were on the other side of the globe and they came back and it, was, it wasn't just welcoming home military teammates. It was a family reunion. And I just, it fascinated that structure was family. It wasn't military. And that's how they operate together. Wow. That, yeah, that doesn't sound like a lot of corporate culture, does it? To put it mildly. No, no it's, it's all because CYA so much. just covers it personally with most of, a lot of corporate. <laughs> and the, 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 the uh, chief, the CXO, the chief operating, a COO and the chief XO, mm. uh, their job is to pre prevent military culture from hitting the team. So their job is to protect the team at all costs. Now they have to implement whatever orders come from above, but all the normal stuff, the military has as much as everybody else. The normal stuff where there is CYA stuff, the XO and the COO, their job is to not let it filter through or let it filter it through in such a way that the team is still protected. Um, thank you so much for your time. We will send you, of course, a copy of this podcast um, once it's edited. Um, just just reaching out to my colleagues, guys. Do we? What's the? Is the role? Is the the sort of routine here that uh, Bill 
gets the final one only or does he get right of review or what how does it work That's terrific. And you pronounce your name Shanek? Shanek? Well, thank you, Shanek. And, and for the most part, for your whole team. I, it, I'm, you know, I trust you guys. You know, I'm sure it'll be awesome. So I doubt there'll be anything I'll have to nitpick about. Yes, I'll, I'll review it, but I'm sure it'll be an instant. Okay. Yeah, you don't uh, say one... uh, uh, a lot, like, which I do, and I go sort of, yeah, uh, uh. <laughs> the one thing I didn't get to do is plug, I don't know whether there's uh, subtitles or overs on this, but uh, I didn't get to plug the um, website for the book. I forgot to do that. Is there, can you okay, put that we, in? I'm sure we can do that. But when you mentioned, if you can do a title, you know, it's... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll resend it to you, but it's tomorrow said yes, but I registered it in Spain. So it's uh, y.es, tomorrow said yes, is the, uh, is the website address. And by the way, uh, Sarinda and Shawnak, uh, I'll also, if you guys uh, CC me uh, on anything, I'll, I sent to Andrew the book. I'd love to get your feedback. I'll send it to you ahead of time, too. It's a fantastic read, I have to say. It's very so, it's so, it's not a little, it's slightly depressing, but it's way more inspiring than it is depressing. <laughs> That's that's a pretty good review. I like. Yeah, I want. It, I wanted the tension between. Wow, I feel like I can go do it. And oh shit, I have to do this. Yeah, that was good. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Namaste, Bill. Thank you so much. Thank you all, guys. I appreciate your time. All the best. And and I'd love to do another podcast with you because you you're an expert on about a billion things. <laughs> <laughs> eloquent on those as you are <laughs> thank you all right talk to you all later have a great right, day bye.